Welcome to Entrench, a 21 Pilots podcast. Hello, local dreamers. Welcome to Entrench. My name is Anna, and in today's bonus episode, first one, we will be discussing Act 1 of All My Sons. Make sure you read the section beforehand if you don't want spoilers. This play also contains a trigger warning for suicide. I am so excited. You know I love music, and if you follow me on Instagram, I think you're you're aware by now that I also love literature, so this is really exciting to be bringing this part of my personality to you, and not only that, but to be combining it with my love of 21 Pilots. Never thought that would happen, but here we are, so I hope you enjoy. I will give like a brief summary of everything. But if you are looking for the nitty-gritty details, I would highly suggest reading this because it is not very long and it's like really engaging and it's a play. So if you have a shorter attention span, it's really easily digestible. I'm a huge reader, but even if you're not a huge reader, I would encourage you that it's it's not intimidating at all, especially because it's not like a long-form novel. It's a play. You can always just stop when you need to, break it into little chunks, whatever you gotta do. But yeah, this will be, I will probably, you know, miss out on a lot more in these discussions because I've only read this once (laughs) in my entire life. Um, It's nowhere near as much as I have digested Tony Pilots, so um, I'm sure there will be a lot more holes and that is why I really, really genuinely encourage all of you guys to join this discussion somehow, some way please because I love talking about literature but genuinely this is the best thing I have read all year in 2022. It has easily blown everything else out of the water and I've read around 30 things this year and this was like miles above everything else. Easily five stars for me. I mean yeah I'm probably biased because I love the Tony and Pilot implications and ties on top of the story itself. So like, I mean, for us, it's cool because it's not just a play, but it's a play that has an implication on something else that we really love. So that's cool. Also, while Tony and Pilots, of course, are not going to really be explicitly mentioned other than obviously the literal reference that they used for their name, just know that they or Tyler at least appreciated this play so much that he wanted them to perpetually forever be associated with it. And that's a huge deal. I think that means that all of the spiritual implications, there's a lot of spiritual implications in this play that I was pleasantly surprised by because I really wasn't sure going in that there would be other than whatever the phrase Tony and Pilots meant. But there's actually like a lot of themes that have a lot of spiritual connotations, which I was so shocked by that there was so much. I I didn't know if I would have much for these podcasts, so it's really exciting. And so just know as we are discussing all of these spiritual things that they have just as much implication for 21 Pilots and what they stand for as they do for the play narrative itself and the characters themselves in this play. And that's really cool. And of course, we're either going to have two or three episodes on this. You know, I'm going to test this out, see how long this one is. Acts 2 and 3 are not as long as Act 1, so I'm 
kind of unsure yet if I will combine them into one or if they're going to be long enough that they both need to be separate. But regardless, I have completely written a bunch of notes on as a whole, like once we've talked about all of the acts, how this brings so much more light to 21 Pilots' band. So that's really exciting um, coming in the future to look forward to for you guys. Also, I just want to say that Tyler wanting to be associated with this is also huge for me and hopefully you guys too because it's it's not every day that you see people who are artists okay maybe that's not the right wording but you know normally you consume one art form at a time especially like if you like we know plenty of artists who do more than one art form but we're never like consuming them at the same time so just the idea that Tyler could be both creating music but representing a literature piece at the exact same time is amazing to me and I think that's very rare that there can be that much of a unification between art forms in the same breath. I think that's really cool. Which also kind of, kind of reminds me of my senior year in college when I don't know why it took my college this long to like come up with this idea for events, but they had this like final end of the semester event where the jazz, the jazz students partnered with the dance students and it was so cool. Like there were tap dancers tapping to jazz songs and it was like we need to do this more often like combining our forms is amazing and incredible and it's definitely something that's experimented with a lot more i see like in literature you will just see all kinds of different formats now than just the average novel and it's so cool to experience those kinds of things but anyway in its own way 21 pilots is doing the same thing with representing literature and music at the same time and obviously most fans won't know this if they're not going in as depth as we are um to the point of reading the story like i think most people know well not necessarily there's like a layer of people who don't know anything a layer of people who know that it is named after this and then we are now like this deeper layer of we know that but then we've also like fully read and analyzed the story um and its implications for the band so this is really exciting for me and i hope this is enjoyable for you and uh, it's just gonna be so much fun and just very different from what we normally do but i hope you enjoy this because i am excited even just preparing for this it's like normally i'm listening to something and this time i was like i'm just reading things and it's just in a way for me it's like ah that's less stimulation that i have to sort through than when i'm like listening to a song or listening to a song and also watching a video you know um that's definitely the most like overstimulating process <laughs> for preparation but it was so fun to just feel like oh this is a completely different pace i'm just quietly reading and thinking and reviewing these materials and um it's just a pleasant little change of pace so that's also why i love reading it's a nice change of pace from what the world is used to we have a lot to cover, so let's jump in now that the intro has already been decently long. <laughs> I will give a brief overview of all of the relevant characters thus far in Act 1. So we have the primary, I don't know if we call him the protagonist, but he's the first person we're introduced to, and even as the scene is being set, it's, it's clear that we're centering around the Kellers. So Joe Keller is 
for lack of a better term, we'll just call him the protagonist. And he mainly goes by Keller, so I'll probably mostly call these people, especially as I read through quotes and things, I'll probably mainly call them by what they're called in the script. So instead of Joe, I will primarily call him Keller. Um, then we have Dr. Jim Bayless, who is one of the neighbors. We have Frank Lube, who is also one of the neighbors. That was uh, a loud thumb from a neighbor. Um, <laughs> It was not Nugget. Um, and then we have Larry, who is a pri- the primary center of topic um, and conversation among all of our characters, but Larry is deceased. And then we have Kate Keller, who primarily goes by just mother. We have Annie, who also goes by Anne. I'll probably interchange that one, but it's not like overly different of a name, so I don't think that's a big deal. But just wanted to <laughs> make it known. Um, we have Sue, who is Dr. Jim Bayless's wife. We have Lydia Lube, who is Frank's wife. Um, and they more so make cameos than like huge character additions. And then we have Chris Keller, who is Keller's son. And Bert, who I believe is just like a seven or eight year old other neighbor from around the neighborhood who like also makes a cameo later on in the act so yeah that's that's a lot of characters but hopefully i mean i think also just know that like as we're discussing this the assumption like i said kind of with like i'm not going into my details so it's not that you can't listen to this if you haven't read it but um you might be a little more confused because i'm not going to explain like i might explain context of things that i'm generally discussing or quotes but i'm not going to explain every last thing so the assumption generally is that you have read it but if you haven't read it that's okay i'm just not sure how this is going to translate for you if it's going to be understandable or confusing so just know that. If it starts getting confusing, I mean, more reason to read it. And I've never listened to a play as an audiobook, but if you're less of a reader and you're hesitant and don't want to read it, chances are there's an audiobook for it. So I would highly suggest that as well. And it shouldn't be a super long audiobook either because it's not a long play. I mean, plays are only so long. So yeah. As a brief overview, in Act 1, we are centered around the Keller family, and we very early find out that Larry, this one of the sons, has passed away in an airplane crash, and we find out later on that it was three years ago. Well, he's been missing for three years, and he was last seen in an airplane, so the question is, did he die in the airplane or not? But almost everyone is convinced that, I mean, it's been three years, he's probably dead. So we're introduced to Keller, who is said protagonist, I guess. And we're introduced to his neighbors, Jim and Frank, and their wives. And later on, Chris, the son, comes in. Kate, who's primarily known as mother, comes in. But first, before she comes in, Anne, also known as Annie, comes in. And she was married to Larry. And she also used to be the Keller's neighbor, but she moved away with Larry um, and they got married. And then she just came back. The the neighbors find out that she had spent the night at the Kellers the previous evening that our story begins. And we find out that Chris is intending, Chris and Annie are intending to get married because Larry is 
supposedly dead because it's been three years and she's ready to move on you know I mean it might be a little weird um practically speaking as it was his brother's wife but (laughs) apparently they really love each other so I mean she wants to move on um she truly believes him to be dead but there's a constant tension in this act especially there's it kind of morphs the the tension between character relationships and beliefs morphs and changes throughout the play but in this act the main tension is that keller chris and annie all believe larry is dead and mother does not believe that and she's very hopeful that he is still alive even though it's been a really long time because there has been proof of guys being missing for years and they miraculously come back so she's convinced that's what's going to happen with larry and she's very frustrated because of little things like the fact that keller planted a tree and she feels that it was too early yeah and she she just is frustrated because she feels like she's been abandoned in her hope and that everyone else is just super cynical basically and has just given in to this lie in her mind that larry is dead because she at least according to this act does not believe him to be dead although we will see as it goes on because again there will be spoilers um and i'm not just going like if there are ties to the other acts that i want to bring up i will be bringing them up so while that is how it seems in this act it definitely we definitely end up seeing that she more so is believing this for the sake of wanting to hold her family together and that is why she's holding so strong to this belief even though she ends up not really believing it in the way that we think she really does in this act which is interesting we find out that annie's father is in jail and he worked he used to work with keller at their company they are in a manufacturing business um i don't know if it's specifically just for airplanes or other things as well but the primary focus is airplanes I don't know not that that really matters but there we find out that there was an issue and faulty parts were sent out that ended up to the detriment of 21 pilots so annie's father was confirmed guilty and he went to jail and i don't know if he has a set day to come out but they talk about him him coming out as if it will be soon But anyway, so we find out that happened, and it's actually, it is Keller's business, I believe. It's Keller's business, and so Annie's dad was working for Keller when all of this happened, and then he went to jail. And then at the very end of the act, there's a little twist at the end that was like, oh, we gotta keep reading. Annie gets a call from George, her brother, who is a lawyer, and it ends on this precarious note that perhaps Keller has things to be worried about, which doesn't bode well for him, because that means, was he not completely innocent? Dun, dun, dun. So that's how act one goes. Okay, so my first note is from pages 89 and 90, which is pretty much at the beginning, and this is when Frank and Keller are interacting. This is the first character interaction we have. Actually, that's a lie. 
technically the first character interaction is Jim and Keller. So Jim and Keller are, before I forget because my brain is just like haywire all the time. The other cool thing about this play is it's set in the same scene the entire time. And like, that's also how for me I know something's good is when it's more of a like minimalist plot. Like it's very minimal with its decorations for lack of a better term and yet the content of it packs such a punch and this story has made me think about it like for days afterwards which has not happened I've never had that type of experience for a very long time it's not every day that you read something that really makes you not want to read something after it because you you don't want the power of what you just read to fade from your memory or be replaced by another book or story And that's definitely, like, the awe I felt after I finished this. I think, yeah, I think the fact that it's set in the same setting all the time just makes it that much more powerful and that much more meaningful, that it doesn't need an extravagant set to be powerful as a narrative. So, yeah, the entire time we're set in the backyard of the Keller's home. So Keller and Jim are there, and then Frank comes over, and... Frank is really into horoscopes, and we will see this come back around near the end of the play, but he comes in, and this is page 89 for me. I just realized the page numbers are going to make no sense to you unless you also happen to have the play collection of Arthur Miller's that I do, which is his collected plays from 1944 to 1961. So for me, it's page 89. For you, it's probably like page or something so sorry I don't have your same page numbers so he is looking into Larry's horoscope and Keller's like well like what are you doing and he basically explains that Kate wanted him to look into the horoscope of the day that he went missing um, because Frank says that the day he went missing was November 25th that's what was reported and because of that the assumption and the likelihood is that he passed away and died on that day because that's the first day that they couldn't find him. So Kate, who is mother, is wanting Frank to look into the horoscope for Larry of that day to see if it was a favorable day for him or not. So that is what he is doing in the context of this horoscope theme that comes up very quickly. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because he goes on, Frank starts, so they're they're talking about the horoscopes, and then Jim cuts in, and he's like, to Keller, he's just completely out of his mind, that's all. Frank, the trouble with you is you don't believe in anything, Jim, and your trouble is that you believe in anything. And I just thought that was a good contrast between the moral compasses that people live by and the skepticism people have towards the people in any faith and belief system that has like skepticism for people who have the opposite disposition similar to like optimism versus pessimism i feel like like i i admittedly am very much an optimist and pessimists hate optimists generally sometimes realists also hate optimists (laughs) and usually optimists get 
speaking as one, get very frustrated and pessimist. And so this kind of reminded me of that. Like, people who easily believe in anything are people who get very frustrated with people who seem to not believe in anything. And people who don't believe in anything are, like, cynical of people who seem to believe anything, whatever that means subjectively. And, you know, it, it kind of just reminds you, it reminds me of Christians versus atheists. I think that's the easiest example of someone who doesn't believe in anything in terms of God and faith versus in an atheist's eyes, you you would almost think like, oh, you as a Christian, you'll just believe anything because you're not using logic and you're not being in touch with the literal world and you're just trying to find a way to feel better about yourself and you're very naive and self-involved in that way that you just want to believe anything. You're easily swayed by something that is not true and something that is laughable and like a fairy tale or a children's story. Um, So I thought that really, even though I was talking about horoscopes, In that case, I thought that really illustrated well the dichotomy between the atheist skepticism of Christianity and the Christian's frustration and sorrow for the atheist's way of living. The second thing that stood out to me was the apple tree being destroyed and Annie's reaction to it. So early on, we find out in the colors where the apple tree was destroyed from a storm the previous night yeah it bring it brings up a couple things first of all they're talking about it mother and chris are talking about it and or about the night before anyway um because there was a storm and mother is saying that she was asleep and she had a dream about larry and it felt really real and he was crying out to her and she couldn't he needed help and she couldn't reach him and then direct quote she says i woke up and it was so funny the wind it was like the roaring of his engine i came out here i must have still been half asleep i could hear that roaring like he was going by the tree snapped right in front of me and i like came awake and then she's looking at the tree for in in a daze for a bit and then shakes a finger at keller and says see we should never have planted that tree i said so in the first place it was too soon to plant a tree for him we see the tree later on as uh, a trigger for Annie. And so this tree just holds this image of upsetting, like it's just an upsetting image to multiple people throughout this act. For Mother, there is this lingering tension, as I mentioned in the summary, of people seeming to want to push this agenda that her son is dead when she really doesn't believe that, or at least is is purporting the correct word there that she believes it she's projecting that she believes it even if that's not necessarily true or begins to crumble later on and so in that way like it's obviously seen as a literal metaphor of death that is too real in relation to both mother and annie's relationship with larry but i particularly noted how it upset Annie and how with losing Larry it ultimately represents an uncontrolled loss and 
I mean, we talk about this all the time, but we, even as Christians, we love control and we strive to have control even though we should know better than anyone else, any other human of any other belief system that we do not have it, and yet we cling to it. And so if there's anything, even something sentimental like a tree in our yard breaking, it's very upsetting because whether we like it or not, it's a reminder that we experience pain and we experience loss that we cannot control. I think we all feel struck by the sting of our lack of control in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different seasons of our lives. And our desire for control and our discomfort with our lack of control, depending on what kind of personality you have, it's just so interesting how that discomfort and also desire manifests itself in our different personalities. Yeah, I feel like for me, my my desire for control often manifests in like having very ordered lists and being very organized with my planner and like all these things and I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do everything just so and if I plan everything just so, it'll go just so, which obviously it never does, but like that's one of the first things I think of when I think of like how my desire for control manifests and my discomfort with my lack of control. When I was more unhealthy, I would say there were brief times where I was a bit manipulative and that was definitely like discomfort of a lack of control with relationships specifically. I'm trying to think of a good like current example because I always think it's the most powerful when you give current examples of things in your own life to support other people because they love you guys. I mean, I, I, for lack of like a specific scenario, I would say in general, just like by deeply grieving when things don't go the way that I want them to and in deep grief with those types of things, also finding doubt and anger. A lot of times when I'm hurt, I will later on find anger. And I I feel like a lot of times, like when you have anger like that in the midst of grief, I, I would say, at least for me, that anger is the sign of discomfort, of lack of control, which is so interesting because I don't think about that very much as a particular feeling in a particular circumstance being evidence of something. But I would say anger in the midst of grief is a good example in my life anyway. So we see this theme in so many ways and we we talk about control versus lack of control all the time, but you know, somehow we we seem to forget that God's in control so often and we just seem to float back into this idea that we somehow do have control again even though we never do but our human instinct is to just float back to that default of no we actually do have autonomous control even though no (laughs) so yeah like I said I I have already explained this but it's been three years since Larry disappeared and everyone but mother is convinced he is dead Mother is also trying really hard to convince Annie to believe. And as we know, Annie and Chris want to get married, but she doesn't, Mother doesn't know this yet. And so I think potentially she's, you know, I don't know. Speaking for my mother anyway, like mothers are very smart and they they always know what's going on, even if their children don't tell them what's going on. They're very intuitive and good at reading their children which makes sense because they've known them their whole lives 
And so this just kind of reminded me of, of my own mom and like she is pretending she doesn't know something when she actually does and I feel like mother trying to convince Annie that Larry is alive is like her way of coping with the potential that he, she might marry Chris when she's like no I want you to be attached to Larry forever because I want him to be alive I like really I think that's her motive she wants Larry to be alive not that she wants Annie necessarily to believe I think that's just a cover for what she actually is um wants and so she's just projecting like you need to believe with me (laughs) which I feel like as just the mental health side note I, I feel like it's always good to know and figure out how to distinguish between people understanding and working with you genuinely in relationship versus when they're projecting on you from their own stuff and and we all project on the people of our own experiences our own opinions and everything um and so it's important to I I can't think of a like good concrete way to start learning how to do that but I mean get in the bible that sounds so generic but if you are sitting in truth more often you'll be able to identify truth more often versus projection is is not truth it's it's someone else's truth but it's not your truth just because they're trying to apply it to you so if you can because because if you're waiting in the bible and and figuring out spiritual truth versus um, spiritual lies if you can figure out how to distinguish spiritual truth from lies you can figure out how to distinguish any type of truth from lies because spiritual is like the most sly cunning deceptive lies there are and obviously spiritual lies bleed onto every other kind of lies emotional lies physical lies all of the lies anyway just a little side note And then I really liked this line that Mother says. She goes on this tangent in the midst of all of this and in her stubbornness towards believing that Larry is alive. She says, certain things have to be and certain things can never be. Like the sun has to be. It has to be. Or sorry, like the sun has to rise. It has to be. That's why there's God. Otherwise, anything could happen. And I thought this was interesting. And we just talked about spiritual truth and lies. And I don't think she utilized God correctly in this context. Um, It definitely comes up like she's using faith as as control rather than, and, and coercive, rather than just presenting faith as it is and presenting God as he is. God is not coercive. He's quite the opposite. He gives us free will to make a spiritual choice, for example. Um, But I'm not going to open that whole can of worms of free will, so we're ending it there. (laughs) But that's why there's God. Like, and again, that's her just grasping for control. And and that's the thing. That's the sad thing about, like, types of manipulation or abuse or, you know, especially, like, spiritual abuse is in our desire for control we can use misuse and abuse god's name in order to push our agenda or our beliefs and and trying to pressure people into believing the same thing which is very heartbreaking it is and and should be infuriating that manipulation is not just with mental or emotional things but that it it can often be with spiritual things and having experienced a little bit of that myself, um, received it a bit myself, 
it is the simultaneously the most heartbreaking and the most infuriating thing. And all I can say is praise God that he provides justice for people who misuse his name. Because it's also heartbreaking because I'm grateful that even though I have experienced that a little bit, that I know the truth of God and what his character is and what is not and what he believes and what he doesn't. But the fact that that can happen often for people who don't know any better of God's character is like, I'm gonna cry. Like, that's sad. And it's so not okay. And I, I just will never understand what spurs people to want to make claims about something like God that they will never understand. But anyway, I don't know that mothers necessarily, you know, to that severe or unhealthy extent. I don't think she is, at least not in this particular passage. But like we were talking about discomfort of lack of control, she's very much portraying that in her idea of bringing God into her rationale. Then we see Bert, this little boy, comes in and they're talking about jail. So I'm going to bring up this passage because it's super interesting. So Bert rushes onto the scene. He says, Mr. Keller, say Mr. Keller, Tommy just said it again. Keller said what? Who? Bert, the dirty word. Keller, oh, well, Bert, gee, aren't you going to arrest him? I warned him. And then mother suddenly says, stop that, Bert. Go home. There's no jail here. And then, I thought this description was interesting. Keller, as though to say, oh, what the hell, I don't believe there is. Kate, and he gets cut off. Mother, there's no jail here. I want you to stop that jail business. And she kind of like repeats herself and it goes on. And soon after we learn about Annie's dad and, and that whole scenario with jail. But they bring up like him playing policeman and, and she's really frustrated that he's like playing policeman and um, like this kid had to come and take orders from him in order to get this other kid in trouble and like just a game in that context. But for mother, it's angering and at the time when I wrote these notes I'm like is it related to Annie's dad and in a way it is and as we later found out it's also related to Keller so um of course she's frustrated and angry that they are playing this thing and even though I feel like it's also just exacerbates her beliefs because she's in this context saying no, there's no jail. There's, you know, she's very much denying a lot of things in this act, which we'll talk about more with themes at the end. But it's it's like she's just exuding discomfort and denial and frustration. And I feel like more than anyone in this act, Mother is like, you can just feel all of her negative emotions very clearly and you can and just in general you can feel her emotions a lot more clearly than any other character i would say so then keller goes into the whole story about the cracked cylinder heads and this is also where we see the tony and pilots reference so i wanted to read a good chunk okay so keller got sent to jail before he was proved to be innocent. And the line that he says that I wrote down was, I was guilty as hell, except I wasn't. And there was a court paper in my pocket to 
prove I wasn't. And that line in and of itself just, it immediately sounded like the gospel. Even though we know narratively, like, this line is not accurate to what actually happens. In this, in the sense of, of parallels for spirituality, this is, this is literally what Jesus has done for us. We were guilty, except we weren't because Jesus came and he said, no, you don't have to pay the penalty and I will for you. In this case, the court paper. And we go, we are renewed from being completely guilty to not guilty at all. And we didn't do anything to deserve it and we didn't do anything to achieve it or acquire it. And the other thing that I didn't mention is... From what I looked up of Arthur Miller, he is he was Jewish. So very similar beliefs to Christianity. And so it makes sense that there would be like a gospel type message kind of prevalent in here. But now I will read the process about the cracked cylinder heads and this whole passage and the part about 21 pilots. So he says that he was guilty, except he wasn't. He says I was the beast, the guy who sold cracked cylinder heads to the Army Air Force, the guy who made 21 P-40s crash in Australia. And then he says the line I just said. And Chris, with admiration, goes, Joe McGutts. My dad was in the can, and he got out, and he wasn't even guilty, yet he still, like, went and lived out this gritty lifestyle for a while you know and then keller says that's the only way you lick them is guts the worst thing he did saying this to Anne, was move away from here you made it tough for your father when he gets out that's why i tell you i like to see him move back right on this block and mother says how could they move back keller it ain't gonna end till they move back So people play cards with him again and talk with him and smile with him. You play cards with a man you know he can't be a murderer. And the next time you write him, I like you to tell him just what I said. And then he goes on. But I also picked out this, one of those last lines where where Keller's really talking about, you know, he's going to come back and people are going to forgive him and Annie you need to too because it's it's very clear that Annie does not want to forgive her dad and she very much believes him to be guilty and, and she's very angry with him and doesn't want anything to do with him going forward but Keller is convinced that if he comes back and is integrated back into community people will see his humanity more than they will see the fact of him being a murderer in the sense of sending out those faulty parts that resulted in plane crashes and deaths. According to Annie, her dad knowingly shipped the parts and could have easily killed Larry as part of that issue. As such, you know, it makes sense that that she would be mad and hurt and heartbroken that her dad, who she very much loved, could have done something to not only harm but kill her husband who she very much loved and so her her anger is real because it's such an injustice for something to happen to someone to unfairly happen to someone who had no idea like that's not okay and for someone to knowingly do something that is wrong is not okay but like obviously we all do that and that's what sin is but that doesn't mean it's ever right and that doesn't mean 
that it's ever going to excuse that our intentions were to to knowingly do things wrong. And so her negative feelings are very much valid, but the desire for forgiveness, the desire for reintegration of community is very much God's desire for us for the betterment of our hearts and we you know we all hear that a lot at church but it genuinely is true and it's, it's also true because God doesn't want us to live in the past and the more you sit in unforgiveness or bitterness the more you will remain chained and speaking from my own experiences it's just it's exhausting because like the best part of forgiveness is when you are finally healed you have the freedom to be more present with your current relationships and with your literal present than you could ever be if with the presence of unforgiveness and obviously it it genuinely takes the miracle a miracle it genuinely takes the miraculous power of god there's nothing you can do but continually bring god your unforgiveness until he he molds it and turns it into a shiny pearl <laughs> um, which he will do but it's it's gonna be one of those things where it's like you can't just stare at the pot for it to boil you're gonna have to you know find things to do in the meantime while not expecting a super linear process and um, it's kind of similar to something that just happened to me I had my dad said something very kind to me yesterday that was I'm grateful to see your goofy and cheerful self again because we talked quite some time ago many months ago and he was like very observant that ever since I graduated college the world has been really heavy on my shoulders and anyway the parallel is somewhere along the way God removed the heaviness that I don't have it anymore and I, I literally don't know how I don't know I don't even know when exactly but somehow it happened and um I think that's pretty similar to how the forgiveness process works as well as you're not going to necessarily know exactly when it's happened but at some point you you know that it's happened and and other people know and can sense it and, and witness it in your life and that's the coolest thing and just know as someone who's had to go through some immense healing processes with very heavy things um is very possible reconciliation i'll say is a whole other topic i think it's a very nuanced topic as well I would encourage you to just continually read scripture to find out what genuine truth is in in those areas because I don't I don't think it looks the same in every scenario and I think sometimes we wrongly what's the word like reconciliation is always the goal but it's never I shouldn't say never it's not always realistic in certain scenarios and it's really a case-by-case basis in the sense of like i don't know i also feel like my my view of the meaning of the word reconciliation might be a little too limited like when i think of it i think of like full reintegration into a relationship and there's definitely times with people for sundry of reasons why that's unrealistic and actually really unhealthy and would be worse for a relationship if it was reintegrated but reconciliation as a concept could could be broader than that very specific meaning i don't know i'm not i'm not like a a spiritual scholar or anything so hopefully i'm not leading you theologically astray (laughs) 
I'm gonna like say a prayer after this but anyway point being it's kind of similar to me blanking because night brain um something I was talking about earlier where it's like something can be true but you you can't just apply something to every single scenario because everything is as human beings is is more nuanced than we want it to be I guess my point is just with not just with like reconciliation but a lot of concepts is just be shrewd in the feedback you're receiving and what things mean by going to the ultimate source god and also going to a lot of different community sources and not just like one or even like two people like going to a lot of people to to get wisdom because in an abundance of counselors there is wisdom not with one singular person there's wisdom but an abundance of counselors and I mean probably realistically most things the truth is somewhere in the middle of whatever but you know here we are anyway that was that was quite the ramble but really great huge biblical concept so wanted to bring that up because how can you not and ultimately so the issue with the cracked cylinders it was just like a hairline crack and I think it says this a couple times just the adjective of hairline crack not just any crack but a really really tiny one and I thought this was a great perfect analogy for sin that we are like oh it's just a a little thing or oh this this sin I'm committing or doing is it's it's really only going to impact me and that's literally never the case even with things that you think are just selfish sins or just centered on you like somehow some way like your sin will impact other people it will because that's the the destruction in nature of sin is that it it's destructive but this was like the perfect external example of our internal ways of like oh i can i can do this this hairline sin because you know it's never gonna get uncontained it's never gonna get out of control like i and again, again it's like oh, i can do this little thing because i can control it it's like we're back to control here no we can't and because we can't it's it's going to get out of control even if we think it's not whether it's like for example it's like oh i'll just tell a little white lie no you won't if you start doing that you're gonna start being more prone to telling even bigger lies not that i shouldn't say use that verbiage because there's not like a ranking of lies you either lie or you don't so but it's like but for lack of like a better example like you can't just do a little commit a little sin and not have it have any sort of impact on you if nothing else it's going to at least have the just the detrimental impact of tempting you even more and making it even more likely that you'll commit the same sin again let alone I would say every sin is also going to impact at least one other person, even if you think it's not. Like your, what you think is a selfish sexual sin, for example, it's going to impact someone. Either a future partner you have, or a relationship with a friend who you're attracted to, or like whatever. Like something like that, I would consider that like a more self-absorbed sin, for lack of a better word, but even that will impact other people. You can't avoid the impact. So my other 
note is um, with talking about motives, again, this tension between who believes what in relation to Larry, if he's dead or alive. I would say, as we see through Mother's coercive nature with how she views God and all that, and just her very strong negative emotions, I would say her main motive behind why she believes that he's alive, on top of what I've already said, is fear. Because if he's dead, that's grief, obviously. It will admit to needing a grieving process, and that is just a really daunting, exhausting process, similar to forgiveness. The fear of, I mean, time passing, I feel like that's always a a fear. The fear of change. And yeah, she, you know, relatably so, is afraid of a lot of things and doesn't want those things to be reality because that's scary. So that is why she's clinging so desperately, almost in, I mean, you kind of do sense that you kind of pity her the whole time, even if you, we as the reader don't know for sure what's happened yet. We definitely pity her, which is proof that like fear is just, it's a life sucker and it, it just whittles people down to really sad things. And and then Annie, in contrast to Mother, I would say, in like her desire to, to marry Chris and her stubbornness with, with not wanting to be swayed by Mother and her stubbornness with her resentment towards her father is, I mean, bitterness, as, as we've said, when it comes to unforgiveness. Um, but she's much more driven by her emotions, by wanting love again, by hating loneliness. And she's also driven to believe that Larry is dead because of just wanting an out for who to blame. Um, she wants to blame her dad. Um, she wants, she wants to be able to contain and control the negativity in her life, which control is always the theme in all of our lives and every literature that we read and every narrative that we read (laughs) erupts against everything it's kind of like pride it's one of those things that's like it's always at the root of everything (laughs) and then at the very end as i said in the summary george who is a lawyer and annie's brother calls and says that he's coming into town because he has some very important information for Annie and there is some very ominous edge to the end of the act which I believe is mainly between Keller and mother and she's mother is basically like frantically asking Keller like you're sure like you're sure like there's there's nothing he could potentially be holding over you because there was a rumor before that Keller was the one who sent the cracked cylinders rather than Annie's dad and he's like yes I'm sure and then he starts getting angry and he's like yes like stop and she's at the end she's just like all right just be smart and that's how it ends and with her like fear and uncertainty coupled with his anger it doesn't bode well and you're suddenly like whereas before you felt really certain that it was Annie's dad and from everyone's attitudes now it's like wait maybe it's not maybe it could have been Keller it's a very unsettling note to end on but it's also a very enticing well-written note to end on 
So, so this doesn't get too disgustingly long, I'm going to jump right into the themes of this act. The first being truth versus lies, which we've, we've already talked pretty extensively about, but I mean, it's a, it's a very consistent theme and very in line with themes of Christianity and faith and God's heart. Whereas God and his way is very black and white with truth and lies, this story is the opposite, where the truth and lies are very unstable and it's very jarring and we kind of, as the reader, just feel jostled around a lot and really don't know who's telling the truth and who's telling lies and who's being genuine and who's not. All we know is we just get the sense that something is off and um, someone has to be right, someone has to be wrong, even though nothing is, is as black and white as we want it to be. And so it's just kind of like a scavenger the whole, the whole time of like, okay, what's actually going on? I mean, that's constantly what we have to do with spiritual warfare is like constantly trying to distinguish between the truth and the lies and the lies are constantly coming at us because Satan is determined. The second theme that I pulled out is, which I hinted at, is denial versus acceptance. So we have Mother very much in denial about Larry versus acceptance, with Chris, Annie, and Keller all having accepted at this point that he is dead. So, I mean, also because of numbers and because of the way that um, the characters are written, we I think it's safe to say we we all are like pretty confident that Larry is indeed dead. And we're it's more so like we're super curious why mother is in so much denial and holding on to it so much. Um, when the odds are really almost entirely stacked against her. Like obviously there's always a maybe, but it seems incredibly unlikely. Um and I I feel like to any reader or any passerby in the story itself, it would be kind of evident that she's just, <laughs> I think delusional is too harsh, but it's like, I mean, it's been three years and what, are, what is she expecting, you know? And none of us are dumb and like, we don't necessarily think she's dumb e- either. So it's, it's really confusing why she is so determined when she really doesn't have any evidence to back up what she's believing compared to the acceptance of his death and very much has a lot more evidence to back it up primarily that he's still consistently missing after three years (laughs) but denial versus acceptance is a constant theme in our daily life as christians and when it comes to gospel sharing especially and the gift that christ is offering each of us whether we really believe he is who he says he is and if the words and the things that he accounts for in the bible are trustworthy and true it's just cool to see such evidently not explicitly but evidently christian themes in this story and the last one i pulled out was imperfection and forgiveness and again forgiveness is so much easier said than done but ultimately in is desired from god because we're all imperfect and until eternity comes we have to accept that imperfection is inevitable sin is inevitable and because that because of that the need for forgiveness is inevitable i hope you enjoyed this discussion today it was very enjoyable to talk about 
um, probably a much slower pace than you are used to and I'm used to, but very enjoyable. And this might even have more content than I've ever had with any of the music pods. So, <laughs> I mean, it would make sense because this, this content is much longer than a song, but yeah. I genuinely really want to hear from you. So with that, I would bid you adieu. You can email entrenchpodcast at gmail.com with all of your thoughts on this portion, this act of all my sons. I would love to hear your literary analysis because we never get the opportunity to do this in this type of setting. So please utilize it and share your beautiful mind with me. As an alternative to email, if you'd rather do something more instant, you can start a discussion in the podcast Facebook group by searching Entrench Podcast Group. I know that rarely happens from anyone but me, but it seriously is always welcomed and never feel awkward. There are so many people who would love to chime in and hear from more than just me, so don't feel like you can't ever do that if you are wanting to because there are a lot of really cool people in there. You can find Entrench on Podbean, Verbal, Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon Music. On Instagram, you can find me at Entrench underscore pod. Stay tuned for Acts 2 and 3. Thank you so much for listening, friends. Stay alive and remember, Entrench, you're not alone.